your time is over, how would you like to be remembered? What would you like your legacy to be? In the text before us tonight, we're in the book of Numbers, as most of you know. Uh, in the text before us tonight, you're going to be reminded about a number of people, uh, and you're going to be thinking about their lives and taking stock uh, with regard to how you remember them. And I want to invite you, as we do this little survey in the chapter before us, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to be thinking about the question, is this the way I would like people to be reminded of me? Or is this the legacy I want to lead, leave behind? So we're in Numbers chapter 26, and uh, let me begin in verse 1, where we read, Then it came about after the plague. It was a terrible thing, the plague. We read about it in the last chapter, Israel sinned. She took on the gods of the people in the land. Uh, she turned against her own god. These were Moabite gods, and she worshipped them instead of the true god. And uh, as a result of that, uh, their sin, the Lord disciplined them. He did not destroy them. No, he disciplined them quite severely, and thousands died. You recall we read that last week. So this is what it's reminding us of. It came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, take a census. Now, you might not think that's too exciting, but it actually was a, quite a source of encouragement to the people. You see, if God is instructing that a census be taken, that means they're still important to him. He has a record of them. He has their names. He has their numbers. And even though there's been severe discipline, he's not bent on destruction. He's bent on discipline. And so uh, the exhortation here given to Moses and Aaron and Eliezer, his leaders, is that they should take a census, as it says, of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's households. In other words, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. Now, folks, this is the second census we read about in Numbers. The first was ordained in chapter 1. Now we read the second. In fact, this is how the book takes its name from these two censuses or sensi, whatever the plural of it is. It's called the book of Numbers. Uh, the Greek word for numbers is uh, arithmoi, like from arithmetic. So, 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 so the title of numbers, if it's in Greek, is arithmoi. But I think I mentioned some time ago, that's not actually the right title. The title in Hebrew is bemidbar, taken from the first verse of the first chapter where we read the phrase, in the wilderness. That's how the books of the Torah and the Old Testament are named from a phrase in the first verse of the first chapter. Because if you just, as we spoke, as if you just think of this as a as a collection of statistics and numbers. You, you say, I'm not too interested in reading the book of Numbers. But if you see, no, 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 it's really about Israel's wilderness journey, and by extension, yours and mine, uh, theirs on their way to their land of promise, our journey on our uh, way to our place of promise, then this book takes on much more significance. So here is the second census which is to be taken. Uh, and about 39 years have passed between the two. The first 
enumeration of the people was to be taken before they began their journey to the promised land. And now about 39 years later, the second is to be taken before they enter into the promised land. And so verse 3, Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord has commanded Moses. Now the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were. Now here's what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. There are 12 tribes in Israel, and you're going to see in a rather standard format, each is counted and the number of each now after 39 years of wilderness wandering is given. And just to give you a sample, we won't, we won't read through the whole chapter, so don't get nervous. I just want to give you a sample of the standard sort of formula by which this census is taken and recorded. And so it says in verse 5, starting with Reuben, the first tribe to be counted, Reuben Israel's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the family of the Hanakites, of Palu, the family of the Paluites, of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the family of the Carmites. These are the families of the Reubenites, and those who were numbered of them were, and then you have the number, 43,700 and 30. Now, I know we're not getting much out of this, but they did. I got to tell you, they got really turned on. This meant, oh God, we still have a future and a hope. We have done wrong. We, your people of covenant, have squandered our privileges and have gone after false gods. We've been a rather unholy lot, and you have justifiably disciplined us severely. But your love is persistent. You will deliver us, yet through discipline, you will not totally destroy us. And so the first tribe is numbered in this fashion. And that's what takes place in the rest of the chapter for 12 tribes. But here's what happens when you're reading the Bible and you're in a text like this and you're saying, you know, Lord, I am reading this because I know it's your word and it's there for a reason, but I just got to level with you. I don't know where you're coming from. I am, this is like reading a phone book. And it is. And then here's what happens. You're reading down. You say, oh, man, okay, I knocked off Reuben. One down, 11 to go. You know, and you're going through all the names and stuff like that. And then what happens is there's a departure from the standard format. It's a literary device given by Almighty God because you're starting to, to sleep. You know, you get to tribe three and four, and you're going, holy moly, give me a break. And then something happens which disrupts the expected pattern, and that's exactly what you have to pause and pay attention to. So that's what happened to me this week as I was studying this and thinking, oh, no, what am I going to talk about? This is, this is chapter, oh, God, how about the rapture before Wednesday night? How about it? And, you know, and then after the rapture, there'll be other ministers here who could take over. You know, I didn't say, I didn't mention names. I am a disciplined, I, I am restrained. I didn't say mention names, buddy. I didn't say any, no, I... 
So, uh, so then I see a departure from the standard fare, and it's like the whole chapter uh, got unlocked for me, and I hope for you as well. So the first departure from the format is in verse 9. Take a look. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram, these are the Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation, who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. Then it goes on to say, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men so that they became a warning. Now that is a radical departure from the standard order of things in this chapter. And so I pause to consider once again Dathan and Abiram. They are memorialized here in this chapter. They are being remembered. But what are they being remembered for? And is this how you would like to be remembered. Would you like this as your legacy? They are remembered as ones who, as it says here, became a warning. A warning of what? A, a warning of how not to do life. This is how not to do it. What exactly did they do? Well, it's mentioned way back in Numbers chapter 16 when we were there. I'll just summarize it for you once again to refresh our memories, what they did is they bucked the system. And this is real hard for us to get. We are rugged individualists, particularly as American Christians. And there's some virtue in that, but it also could be our downfall if we let too much of that enter the church, because the church is, is an organization it has a plan. It has leaders, and it has those who follow. Uh, God in the organization has distributed spiritual gifts, not one of which is more important than another. They all have to be manifested, and he has put in that organization a number of individuals, and his intent is for the whole to be far greater than the sum of the individual parts. And it can work that way when the individual parts opt for the greater good. On the other hand, when the individuals start bucking the system, as did Dathan and Abiram, <gasps> tremendous division and disharmony could take place in the local body, in our case, the local church, so that God is robbed of glory and we are robbed of blessing. So what they did in essence was to buck the system. God appointed as leaders Moses and Aaron. And they, these two, Dathan and Abiram, confronted the duly appointed, equipped, qualified, called, recognized leaders of that congregation, and they essentially said, you know, we're all holy, right? So where do you guys get off? Who do you think you are? What we have to say about the direction in which we travel has as much validity as what you have to say. In fact, we don't like the way you're leading us. Good night. Isn't this like a desert? Couldn't we have died back there in Egypt? I don't see how you're leading us rightly. 
Who put you in that position? So they resisted God's appointed leaders. And folks, this is hard for us to get. In so doing, they resisted God. It's a sin of lack of submission to duly appointed authority. And I know we have such a hard time with this in this egalitarian society where everyone has an opinion, everyone has an idea, everyone has a notion of how the congregation should be traveling. That's called, that's called Wall Street occupiers. <laughs> That means any goofball sign you want to hold up, you can hold up. And what you have is no direction. you got people going in all kinds of crazy directions. But God is a God of order. No one being of more value or worth in his eyes than any other, but each of us being called to distinct roles. And in number 16, Moses tried to reason with them. you got to give this guy credit. I mean, you just want to slap those guys around. But he didn't. He was a meek leader. And so he tried to reason with them. And you know what he said? He said this, isn't it enough? Isn't it enough that God called you into covenant relationship with him? Isn't it enough that he appointed you to be his priests? Isn't it enough that he gave you himself and that he gave you service that you are to render to the rest of us? And in essence, their answer was, no, it's not. In fact, what we want, this is what, in essence, they said, we want what God has called you to do. We want to usurp your role. We want to be you, and we want to do what God called you to do. That kind of insurrection may be okay in Wall Street. It is not okay in the body of Christ. You have to find out where you're fed, and you have to respect where others fed. It doesn't mean you're lower on the totem pole in the eyes of God. It just means we have a coordinated organization. And so they bucked the system. They essentially said, no, we can do, and we will do, and we insist on doing what God has called you to do. And the ground the very ground under Dathan and Abiram opened up and swallowed up everything associated with them, including their homes and their families. This is serious business. What they did had ramifications way beyond themselves. They lost their lives. Now, folks, this is unusual what happened here. And there are certain times in history where it seems that uh, a sin area is so severe and bad that God intervenes immediately with judgment so as to let it serve as a deterrent for others. This is one of the times in which God's corrective intervention was immediate, not when Jesus returns, but there the ground opened up and Dathan and Abiram are gone, and they are remembered, just as the text says, so as to be a warning to the rest of us. Do not sow seeds of discontent in the body of Christ. Work on harmony. Find your place. 
Let it be enough. Thank God for it. Show deference to one another. Pray for, respect, and submit to the duly appointed leadership of the church for so long as the leadership of the church are following the leader, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so this is how they are remembered. Would you like to be remembered this way? Could I tell you something? There are some here who are going to be remembered this way. There are some here who are unbridled, unbridled in assaulting and seeking to usurp the rightful role of the duly appointed leaders of this church. Could I tell you it is serious business? We do not worship people. We don't bow down to one another. Don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. But disrespect to duly appointed leadership is not tolerated by the head of the church. This, is this how you want to be remembered? Some here are remembered this way already. Whenever that person gets around, he always, she always stirs it up, causes disharmony, tells tales. It's very, boy, it's quiet in here, all of us. So, see, here's the problem. When you read the Bible, I'm telling you, it just, you know, it's just, it's a mirror. We have to hold it up. I do, you all do, we all do. We just want to find our spots, fit in it, and say, oh, God, is it, it is enough that you saved me and that you gave me a gift or gifts and that you gave me a place in which to serve, and I cannot be jealous of another person's. I have to pray for that person and not be a threat to that person. So, okay, that's how they're remembered. Well, then the next departure, things go on. You read about more numbers and more tribes and, you know, things are going along and it's kind of okay. And then something jumps out at you when you get to verse 19. Look at it. The sons of Judah. So we're reminded of two people who are not remembered in a good way, Dathan and Abiram. Now here are some others. The sons of Judah... And here are their names, Er and Onan. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And that too is a departure from the formula. So what's happening with these guys? You have to go back to Genesis chapter 38 to be reminded of them. But here's what happened. Um, Judah uh, bore these sons through a Canaanite woman. That is not good. That was just an unauthorized partnership. Before, between someone in the covenant and someone else. It's the equivalent of a believer marrying an unbeliever. This is what happened. So, so, so Judah uh, uh, fathered children with his Canaanite woman, and these are two of them, Er and Onan. And Er was the oldest. And Judah, his dad, this is what they did in the old days, matched him up in marriage with a woman named Tamar. Have you heard of her? So you got Er and Tamar, and Judah matched them up. But Genesis 38 records Er was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was evil. And we're curious. We want to know evil in what sense, but we're not told. We don't know. We know that what he did or how he lived was displeasing to the Lord. 
and, and was quite offensive to God. That's all we know about Er. And in fact, he was so evil in the sight of the Lord, it says this in Genesis 38, that the Lord took his life. That's all we know. That's how he's remembered. That's his legacy. He was evil and the Lord took his life. So then something happened which any thinking person in here is going to find odd. And I'm one of them. It's just strange. But it was a custom in the day. Judah, the dad of the deceased son, goes to the younger brother, Onan, and requires that Onan take as his life partner his brother's wife so as to father children with her. We say, that is weird. Please, please understand, though, and it, it just seems that weird, but it was a custom. It's actually regulated in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's actually a commandment. Why? Folks, widows in that day had absolutely no means of support. You don't go out and get a job. There's no social service system. They are really beholden to males in their family who would provide for them. This was a means, therefore, by which a good and gracious God would see to it that an otherwise needy lady would be provided for. Not only that, it would be a way of memorializing, perpetuating the legacy of the deceased husband. You see, his name would be carried on, perpetuated through children, sons in particular. So it was called Levirite marriage. Levir from the Latin word, which means brother-in-law. So Onan, the brother-in-law, is required by law, God's law, Deuteronomy 25, to go into his brother's wife, his deceased brother's wife, so as to produce children through her, so as to perpetuate his brother's name, so as to provide for family welfare. It's a commandment. Well, Onan thinks about this, and he begins to have regular relations with Tamar, but not in such way that she would bear children. Please use your judgment. I want to be discreet here. So, so, so that's what he does, to keep from conception from happening, you see. Why does he do it? Because he knows if she bears children, they will have inheritance rights. They will inherit the estate of his deceased brother, which means his estate would be diminished. This is not a good thing. So in essence, what he did was also so evil in the sight of God, the text says, the Lord took his life also. Now, don't misunderstand what it was that was uh, displeasing in the Lord's eyes. I think people come to a, the wrong conclusion about that uh, rather graphic text. I'll tell you what he did. Physical relations without commitment. He did what a lot of people do in the day, because the world says it's okay, casual sex. You know, two consenting adults kind of a thing? That is a redefinition of a coming together of two people from God's point of view. It doesn't even have meaning and worth and 
definition apart from commitment and willingness to assume responsibility for one's partner. You know what Onan did? Personal gratification without acceptance of personal responsibility. So he sinned against Tamar. He used her without any intent of enabling her to raise up children to perpetuate her dead husband's name and to provide for her. He didn't care. It was just personal gratification. He sinned against her. He sinned against the family. He sinned against his own body. He sinned against God. Folks, you and I are going to have to really, 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 really work harder today to appreciate the sanctity and holiness of sexual relations. Why do I say that? It's being so minimized and diminished. You even find yourself thinking, well, can't you just love one person and be gratified by many? You actually, you find yourself at, at moments of weakness actually saying, what's wrong with it? It's wrong. It's not how God designed it. We want to be gracious for the, to the violators of uh, God's laws, you understand, as, as we have received grace. But, but we can't compromise these standards. Personal sexual gratification outside of the context of commitment and responsibility is the bane of society. It is unbelievable how an increasing number of kids today have mom, but not dad and mom. I want to be sympathetic. We want to be supportive. Things happen in life. Don't misunderstand. On the other hand, we can't uphold as a model of living, fathering children without responsibility, sexual relationships without vows of publicly declared commitment called marriage. Called marriage. And it isn't between two people of the same gender. That is not marriage. That is unacceptable from God's point of view. So it was so serious, his life was taken. So listen to me. I don't want to hurt anybody. But is this how you want to be remembered? I ask myself, is this the legacy I want to leave from my children? Friends? Fellow church members? Stuart, I remember when he had that affair. I don't want that to be the legacy I leave. I'm capable of it, and so are you. And if you don't think you are, you're in jeopardy. Because we're all capable of it. I run like crazy. I watch touch. I watch closeness. I draw the line so far in the sand, I'm a, I'm a fanatic. I don't ride in a car with someone, uh, a female other than my wife. I don't care if it's pouring cats and dogs. I don't do these things. I don't trust me. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Watch what you do. Watch who you touch. Watch how you conduct yourself. Watch, watch, watch. I don't want to leave as a legacy. Yeah, dad was a pretty good dad. 
but boy, the disruption he caused when he sinned against mom. I don't want to hurt anyone here. Don't misunderstand. But there comes a time when we want to keep folks <laughs> from doing the things that will hurt those who you leave behind. I don't want to be like this guy. And you don't want to either. Therefore, make some choices to live differently. So we've read about Dathan and Abiram and Er and Onan. And now oh, it gets worse. If you skip to verse 60. So you got all these tribes and numbers and you think this is really good. There's going to be nothing here for me to apply. I can just read this and go in my Murray. And then you're getting smacked all over the place here. Well, here's verse 60. Uh, to Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu. So we read about Dathan and Abiram. We read about Aaron and Onan. Now we got another pair of guys. Uh, to Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. So that's what they're remembered for. Nadab and Abihu offering, they died because they offered strange fire. And the story is given way back in Leviticus chapter 10. It tells us, they see they were priests. They took up pans. Pans is what they did. They put fire in the pans, and then they put incense on top of the fire in the pans, and they offered up strange fire to the Lord, which he hadn't commanded them to do. So these were Aaron's two oldest sons, and they were priests, meaning they were consecrated, they were called, they were set apart, they were recognized, they were anointed, they were ordained for this priestly function. In fact, they were so wonderfully privileged. There was a time when God said to Moses, come up to Mount Sinai, meet with me, receive the law. And he was there with a delegation who went with him. And these two were amongst that delegation. What a privileged position. And yet, in spite of the privilege of this marvelous role in life and this marvelous closeness to God, they sinned against him by offering strange fire. What does this mean? Well, incense was made in those days, and I guess today too, by mixing spices together, different spices. And then they would become a vapor by putting them in a fire pan in which you put hot coals. And the Bible said, but those coals have to be taken from the altar of sacrifice on which animals are offered as sin offerings. You have to get the hot coals from that place. So it's possible. I don't know this. But it's possible maybe they got the coals from another place. As a result, it was strange fire. Also, you had to offer this incense at certain stipulated times of day. Maybe they took it upon themselves to do it at another time. Maybe that's what made it strange fire. Also, they were the wrong people to be offering this stuff anyway. This was supposed to be done by the high priest, not by the subordinate priest. So whatever it is, wrong fire or wrong time or wrong people, they did what God had not authorized them to do. Now, if you ask them, they would say, oh, no, God told me. You know, I get nervous about that. When I listen to me, if you're sharing, look, the Bible says, you know, Numbers 26, so on and so forth. But this stuff, God told me to tell you, you know, if you hear too much of that, I get nervous about that. I just, maybe it's just me. 
You want to share with me what he wrote in the Bible? That's a cool deal. But this deal God sent me with a message for you, it kind of freaks me out. A lot of time I find out it's strange fire, unauthorized. Sometimes people do it with great emotion and exuberance and passion. But no obedience. And strange fire is no substitute for compliance with the word of God. Folks, there is a ton of strange spiritual fire going on today. There are ones with zeal to correct the church because the entire church in America is going to hell. Listen to me. It's the best thing America got going. And yeah, the church is made up of a bunch of imperfect people like me and you. Welcome to the real world. But God intends to be glorified through it anyway. The one who abandons the church for a better idea, that's strange fire. That person could act as a herald and God told me and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but you, when you abandon the very institution and agent of societal change that God ordained, the local church, I said, man, there's a bunch of fire in you, but it's unauthorized, strange fire. That's when you attribute something to the Holy Spirit. That's just your unholy carnality. And there's a ton of it going around today. Well, folks, Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire. And as a result, the text says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They offered up their own false and strange fire, and God answered with fire of his own. And the judgment upon them was so severe, God graciously explained to us this. It's in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So he took their lives. Here's the point. The closer you and I get to God, the more attention we have to pay to his holiness. Just as those guys were brought very close to God, so to you and I have been given access to him. And folks, do you know we're in the role of priests today, all of us? We're given the marvelous privilege and responsibility of representing God to man. That's what the priest does. We're close and we're privileged. And the more privileged we are and the closer we get, the more we must show deference and respect to the holiness of God. That means to be set apart unto his glory. There was a letter written in the second century A.D. It's called the Letter to Dignitas. It's preserved for us down to this very day. And this author of the letter, second century A.D., wrote a letter explaining some things about this strange group of people called Christians. And this is how it reads, second century A.D. Christians are not differentiated from other people by country or language or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing and food and other aspects of life. 
but at the same time, they demonstrate to us the unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. Second century A.D. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. Second century A.D. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. Wow. What a legacy. What a way to be remembered. Not as Nadab and Abihu, with unrestrained, unbridled, unholy fire, but in this particular way. Nadab and Abihu are remembered to this day as ones who did not treat God as holy. So then, we've had the rather unpleasant experience of surveying the legacies of three pairs of people. They serve as examples of how not to live, but thank God there is a final coupling of people in this chapter they left the legacy of an entirely different kind. I call your attention to them in verse 63. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. In other words, not one person numbered in the first census is alive. They all passed away in the desert. For the Lord had said of them, this is verse 65, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Caleb and Joshua are remembered as exceptions. God, you see, told Moses, send 12 Folks, into the land of promise and check it out. Go on a reconnaissance mission. I know what they'll find, but I want their report to be for your benefit. And so they come back, these 12, and they say, wow, it's really something. It's truly a land filled with milk and honey. In fact, we brought a sampling of the, the uh, products in the land. Wow, fertile agriculture, big grapes, lots of good stuff. And then they get the majority report from 10. The 10 say, in spite of all this, it's for naught. We can't take it because there's a bunch of people in the land and they live in fortified, strong cities and they say in essence to God, oh God, we know you promised it to us, but we don't think you can pull it off. Therefore, we're not going. But then the minority report was offered by Joshua and Caleb. They said, hey, 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 we saw the same stuff. All the good stuff and all the bad stuff. We saw the things in the land of promise, and we saw those who were in the way of us coming into our inheritance. We saw the obstacles in the land. We saw the walled, fortified cities. We saw folks over there. We saw it all. And seeing could be disbelieving, but we're not going to disbelieve. We have not only seen, but we have heard the promise contained in the Word of God. And we believe that God is able to move us into our land of promise in spite of all the obstacles in the way. Well, the people listened to both diametrically opposed reports and they opted for the majority view. 
because someone fooled us into thinking somewhere along the way in human history that the majority is right. No, the majority may rule, but the majority is often not right at all. It was the minority report that they should have followed, but they didn't. And so they, they rebelled against Almighty God. And what happened? The entire adult population of those over the age of 20 who started out in the wilderness wanderings in Numbers chapter 1 perished and never gained entrance into the land of promise with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. They were the exceptions to the rule. They did not follow the rule of human reason. They simply followed the promise of Almighty God. They simply lived by faith. They too saw circumstances, and, but they remembered God's promise, and we remember them for it. So then, four pairs of people in this rather complicated chapter are remembered. Dathan and Debiram are remembered for their arrogance and for their insolence and for their rebelliousness and for their refusal to submit to godly leaders. Er and Onan are remembered for their evil, Onan in particular for his uh, sexual improprieties. Nadab and Debihu are remembered for their fire, but their unauthorized fire, their misdirected zeal. But Caleb and Joshua are remembered for their sheer and utter confidence in the word of God. So I ask you this as we draw to a close. What do you want to be remembered for? I ask myself the same question. I'm not preaching to anybody. We're just talking here. What do we want to be remembered for? What do you want your legacy to be? Whatever it is, <clears throat> you have to live your legacy now in order for it to be your legacy when you pass. That's how it is. Do you know you and I are writing our epitaphs right now, every day, by the choices we make? Whatever has happened up until now, forget it. Can't do a thing about it. I beseech you from this day forward, I'm speaking to myself too, live the legacy you want to leave behind. Start living the legacy you really want to live. Leave. Do you want a legacy of humility and cooperation for the greater good like Dathan and Abiram? Uh, unlike Dathan and Abiram? Well, you have to start living it now. Do you want a legacy of holiness unlike Er and Onan? You have to start living it now. Do you want a legacy of balance unlike Nadab and Abihu? You must live it now. Do you want a legacy of faith like Caleb and Joshua? You have to start living it now. Your legacy is something you create during your lifetime for the benefit of those who come after you. Think about it. I know we talk about wills and trusts and financial stuff and all the rest. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> your legacy, your legacy is a, uh, are the memories you leave, leave behind with regard to the lifestyle you live. Those who come after you will only have left what they remember of you. I was talking to one one of my dear friends and sisters, Debbie, she's over there. There's Debbie Doris right there. Debbie's grandma just recently went home to be with the Lord, hot on the heels of her mom, 
going home. Really great to see you, Deb. I know it's not been an easy time for you. But anyway, we were chatting over the phone, just talking about stuff, and I asked Deb what she remembers about her grandmother, and even in the midst of tears, and you know, a measure of understandable heartache. Wonderful things came out about her cooking and about your Saturdays together and about how you went to the mall and always ended up at uh, Chick-fil-A, I guess it was, and it put a smile on my face. And you remembered your grandmother's words expressing concern about the spiritual situation of other members of the family, and uh, so you miss that. But, ooh, what a good deposit of memories she put it. What a legacy she left for, for one such as you. Don't you want to have that kind of deposit? That's all that's left when loved ones pass. What do we remember? What will people remember of you? You know, earlier we were singing such beautiful songs, and I saw a phrase in one of them. I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but uh, do you remember it? Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every, every, has it go? every breath that I take, Every step or every moment I'm awake, thank you, Brenda, I live for you alone. Could I ask you to do what I, I, I'm trying to do myself? I want to live that. So in the end, someone who knows me, knows you, will say, he is, he is she plenty imperfect, <laughs> plenty flawed, <laughs> and all the rest, but boy. They had a heart for God. Do you know in this, this book of Numbers reminds me of something? God has our numbers too. <laughs> he has our number. He has our name. And he already has our place ready for us if we're Christians. The question is, do we have a heart for him? Let's leave that as the legacy. Here lies someone who lived in such fashion that they knew they couldn't live without the giver of life. Here lies someone who was living proof of a loving God to a watching world.